Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Coming up on the next episode of Star Talk, it's fusion and lasers all the way. Featuring the acting director of the National Ignition Facility of Lawrence Livermore National Labs. We're going to find out why does ignition need such high temperatures in order to make the fusion this holy grail of the production of energy. And how is it that our special guest for that show managed to cast shade on the sun? Those are fighting words to an astrophysicist. Also, where do you find tritium? At the local store, in mines, in the universe, where do you get it? And also, will fusion ever be portable? All of that and more on this next episode of Star Talk. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk. Today, we're going to talk about fusion and lasers. Ooh. Ooh. Co host Chuck Nice. How you doing, man? Hey, Neil. How are you? Yeah, fusion and lasers have been in all the news. Who would have thought? It is the hottest thing going. Okay, I'm sorry. Oh, I see um, what you did oh, there. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we did a little explainer video, and I, I, I got people comfortable with what was going on at the Lawrence Livermore Labs. Yeah. Uh, but we thought, why don't we just get? Why don't we just get somebody from the labs? I mean, okay. Why not? That sounds good. So allow me in, to introduce you and our audience to our special guest, uh, Dr. Bruno von Walterhem from the National Ignition Facility at the Lawrence Livermore National Labs. Bruno, welcome to Star Talk. All right. My pleasure. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Bruno, and you, you, are, you definitely are, you have to be Dutch. Yes. <laughs> are you feeling it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know why? Because, oh, yeah, that, it was such a Dutch answer. Like, you know what I mean? All right. Okay. That's how you do it. I'm serious. That sounds uh, like. That's great. So right now you are um, um, acting director? I'm acting director of the National Ignition Facility, and I am also operations manager for the facility. So I basically keep my uh, pulse on everything that is happening in the facility, uh, make sure that the experiments are done well and done effectively and safely and make sure that we get the great results going. Mm -hmm. So, um, in your past, you have a, a PhD in chemical physics from the University of Louisville in Belgium. Is that correct? Excellent, excellent. And uh, your background is in basically lasers, which is so cool. It's always been about lasers. And as I started out, I mean, I was working with, of course, much smaller lasers. So, But I got my eyes on what was going on in the world in other laboratories and so in the 1980s uh, I moved over for a postdoc at the uh, University of California in Irvine again working on lasers and x-ray sources and very interesting uh, projects uh, with respect to laser physics uh, then I moved to work for a couple of years at the Max Planck Institute in uh, 
Göttingen mm. in Germany. And just remind me, the, the Max Planck Institute is many different centers that each have a, an emphasis, correct? Because we have one in astrophysics, but that's not the same one you're describing, correct? It's a unique. So I was working in the one that was uh, focusing on biophysical chemistry and using lasers, I mean, to develop all kinds of diagnostic techniques. And actually, it evolved into a laser production center that it was studying, I mean, Extremely high power excimer lasers, a different type of technology. But again, it was, I mean, the biggest excimer, the highest power excimer lasers under development in the world at that point in time. And that's how uh, I met uh, a visiting scientist from Livermore mm -hmm. explaining about uh, fusion technology, explaining about the uh, Nova laser that was in operation at that time at Livermore. And Basically, putting a, a picture of a Nova laser beam on the whiteboard, which was about, I mean, a year big. Mm -hmm. And uh, that convinced me immediately to say, well, that's the place, that's where I belong. So, um, we, we, like I said, we posted a short 10-minute sort of update after the news hit. And in the comment thread of our just little 10-minute update, there are a bunch of questions we want to sort of bring into this much more full and fleshed out program. And so uh, could you just tell us, uh, first of all, uh, the, the National Ignition Facility, when we think of ignition, we think of turning on our car. So what is you, wh when you say ignition, what do you mean? Uh, an igniting plasma is basically a plasma that heats itself up higher and higher. And so the heat that is generated is larger than the Energy losses, I mean, you lose energy from a reaction, I mean, through radiation, uh, through conduction of uh, energy away from the plasma. But if you can generate so much heat that you overcome those losses, then you keep heating up, you keep accelerating the fusion reactions, and basically it becomes a runaway reaction, and it's uh, like a match that you light up. You start slow and suddenly it flares up and it burns up immediately. And so an igniting plasma is a plasma that uh, sustains itself and heats itself up higher and higher. So you get more fusion, you get more ignition, you get more heat production. And basically, whoosh, you basically burn all the fuel that you have uh, collected and compressed around that little hot spot that ignites the plasma. So we call that hot spot ignition. I'd like your reference to uh, the striking of a match uh, because, of course, when you start out with a match and a little, you know, uh, rough surface, uh, there is no heat anywhere, right? And so then you strike it and then you start something and it doesn't need you to keep helping it. It just is self-sustained as it continues. Yes, it takes off by itself and it goes faster and faster and it actually is over in just, I mean, a, a tenth of a billionth of a second. And that's the amazing thing is you create this enormous amount of energy through the fusion process. And it is basically released in, I mean, from a tiny little spot in an incredibly short amount of time. So the uh, amount of power that is generated is just incredible. And I mean, it shows, I mean, uh, the power of fusion. Wait, wait, but I, from, the, from the notes I saw, you invested... Is it 300 million joules of energy? Yes. That's, that seems like a high starting point. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a lot of energy, but uh, what we're comparing or the official definition of target gain is comparing the energy we put into the target to the energy that came out of the target. Right. And, so, and so even if 300 million is a, a big number. Yeah, 300 million joules is, is, is a lot of energy, but uh, we also have to keep in mind that the National Ignition Facility was never built for efficiency. It was built for, for cost-effectiveness. And so we choose, I mean, the most inexpensive power supplies, the most reliable laser systems, and it worked. It was uh, cost-effective, but it wasn't, I mean, uh, built for efficiency and could have built a system uh, with an efficiency that is 10 to 50 times higher if we would like to do that. So, so yes, I mean, it is a big number, but it's no surprise. And What you're saying is you 
You put in 300 million joules, you got out more than 300 million joules, but not much more. And what you're telling me, if I understand, is this was a test of concept. Now that it works, you could go back in and say, let's make this laser a little more efficient. And this, so, so you can ignite it in principle with fewer than 300 million joules in a new design in mm. the future. Yes. So let's repeat that. So we had again, we had 2 million joules of laser energy, which was incident on the target and compressed the target. And then the target itself emitted 3 million joules again. So we had a, in the, from that point of view, a 1% return, but a 50% relative to the laser energy that was used to, I mean, push the fuel capsule together and ignite it. Wait, 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 wait. So, wait. So, you, you needed energy to power the lasers. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. But you're not counting that in your, in the return on the investment, though. You're only comparing your laser energy to what came out of your pellet. But the fact that you have to plug all this into the wall. <laughs> yeah, of course it counts. And, so is that fair? To, and, is it fair to think of it that way then? It is fair. But uh, once you start to think about now, how can we, I mean, turn this into a process that, that, that delivers energy and can create or use the fusion process, I mean, to, to drive a power plant, then, of course, that efficiency of the driver becomes very important. I mean... You need to start working on higher gain targets. You need to start working on higher efficiency laser drivers. And that in, these two in combination, I mean, can basically deliver to, I mean, a feasible inertial fusion energy plant. Okay, so it's, it's engineering at that point. Yes. You're going to hand it over to the engineers and say, make so this work. Can I, yeah. can I, can I ask you this uh, with respect to the process? Because you uh, likened it to striking a match. Um, and you said you used the, the term self-sustaining. Is there a process where we don't have to worry about how much energy it took to start it because it is self-perpetuating afterwards? Good question. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes, Chuck. <laughs> yes, Chuck. Hey, well, Chuck, there you go. You, you solved it. Okay, now go home. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the inertial confinement fusion, which is the process that we're using, it takes a finite amount of fuel in a little target and compresses it and then creates fusion in the center to light off the little fuel match around it. But it's a finite amount of fuel. And so once that fuel is burned, we need to start that process over again. So we bring in a new target. We again hit it with the laser, compress it, create uh, the hot spot that ignites it, have the ignition, burn up the fuel and do it over and over and over again. And uh, so we uh, believe that for a uh, neutral fusion energy plant, you need to do that about 10 times per second, right? Instead of once a day. And so it's a process that you repeat over and over again. So it's not that we have a gigantic amount of fuel that we can compress. It's a small amount, but it also makes it inherently safe. There is no runaway condition. There's nothing, I mean, that basically can melt down or... Uh, uh, become unsafe from that point of view. The best thing that can happen is that all the fuel burns up, and that's it. And that's it. Interesting. So, un unlike our current, unlike our current nuclear power plants, where you know the the actual uh, chain reaction can run away, and we can't stop it. Yes, you can have meltdown conditions. You can have all kinds of uh, uh, undesirable effects and very unsafe conditions that can be created, but. Uh, that is not the case for inertial fusion energy. Wow. So be before we go to our first break, could you explain why you need such high temperatures in like the tens or even, did I read 100 million degrees? Yeah. What is the temperature doing for you? So the temperature is needed actually to overcome the repulsive forces that normally prevent nuclei in atoms from basically combining with each other. They vehemently... They're all positive charges. They're right? all positive yeah. charges. Mm -hmm. So the closer you bring them, they start to repel each other vehemently, which is a good thing because otherwise the whole world would collapse <laughs> immediately. So... <laughs> 
So there's an <laughs> incredible force that prevents you from molecules from fusing. And in order to actually then overcome those forces and then have the nuclear force, which is the force that actually pulls the charges together in, a, in a, the core of an atom, uh, you need to have incredible temperatures in order to start creating, I mean, violent collisions between the atoms. So you can relate the temperatures to kinetic energy of the atoms moving around. And if you want to increase that temperature, increase the velocity at which they collide with each other, you need to go to temperatures of about 150 million degrees in order for deuterium and tritium to fuse together. And for some other systems, I mean, it can go up to billions of degrees before you can actually reach conditions where the, uh, the nuclei can overcome forces that normally prevent them from collapsing. So presumably this has been some of the decades-long challenge that this process has encountered. Yeah. Uh, I mean, from okay. the... Uh, Initial idea that the lab, I mean, developed soon after the invention of the laser in 1960s. Uh, it has taken us about 60 years to learn how to do this and learn how to achieve ignition. And, and that's why the uh, December experiment was such a spectacular event because it basically, I mean, uh, shows us that whatever was deemed impossible for so many years by so many people was basically overcome using just a continuous development of technological and scientific developments in the laboratory where we, I mean, developed new codes, new computers, new ambiguous laser systems over 60 years to finally come up with a laser and a target design that actually did the trick and worked and delivered the ignition. Bruno, you're talking about rooms full of smart people. Just say it. <laughs> it's rooms. I mean, it is a campus full of smart people. And it's actually campus full of smart not even people. one campus. It's multiple campuses across the country, across the world yeah, that have participated course. in this. That's amazing. Of course. Uh, Bruno, in the center of the sun, um, it's actually not hot enough to fuse the hydrogen outright. And when we run the calculations, because the center of the sun is like 10 million degrees around there, that it's mostly driven through tunneling, quantum tunneling of the protons to come together. And so you can get the tunneling at the lower temperature. Are you saying that your process going up to 100 million degrees, the brute force slamming together of the protons, that you're not get, taking advantage of any quantum mechanical tunneling that might be available to you? Uh, there's some amount of tunneling involved, but uh, I think we want to basically, I mean, speed up the process. And that's where we try to reach the highest temperatures. Because if you look at the uh, fusion energy production in the sun, it's actually really small. It's on the order of a few hundred watts per cubic meter, which is, I mean, almost like the level of a, a compost pile. So the enormous amount of energy from the sun really comes from the gigantic size of the sun. That's how it's big the it is. It's this. Damn, that's the, I've never yeah. heard anyone cast shade on the sun before. Yeah, man, before. you just mm -hmm. and you, you just did. did. You put you, you threw shade at the sun. It's just like <laughs> you're not so hot. You're you're, uh, you're about so as hot as a you know a, yeah. a pile of garbage under some dirt, <laughs> sun. <laughs> so, I was steaming yeah, manure. Hello, yeah, there you go. And it's a good thing actually, because if it if the sun was igniting, I mean that would be that wouldn't be a good day for us. So right. I think yeah, it's course, a nice and steady okay, so, process. Right, right. So it's, it. It, yeah. whereas when you when you go to the full up temperature that physically gets the protons together without relying on the tunneling, which is a kind of an effect happening in the edges of the of the process, if you go full up, then you're going to get the full hammer right. of the nuclear fusion. Oh, what a, yes. what okay. a great, like, villain story for a Bond movie. Like, because Bond movies love lasers, right? And so, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah too. so it's like a an evil genius who comes up with a laser that he's going to use to ignite the plasma of the sun and destroy the whole solar system. Forget the one where he's just like, I'm going to destroy a city. He's like, I'm going to wipe out the whole solar system. Mm -hmm. I can okay, see that's why you, you don't have a job at Lawrence Livermore Labs, Chuck. <laughs> 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 All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to get into lasers and what are they and how do they work and why are they useful for this. And I want to get into 
a little bit of, dare I say, the chemistry of what's going on in the nuclear reactions? Like, what are the nuclei that are actually coming together? And where do you start and where do you end? So we'll get into that when we return on this edition of Star Talk. We're talking about lasers and fusion. We'll be right back. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. I'm Joel Cherico, and I make pottery. You can see my pottery on my website, CosmicMugs.com. Cosmic Mugs, art that lets you taste the universe every day. And I support Star Talk on Patreon. This is Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson. We're back. Star Talk. We're talking about lasers and fusion. And of course, the person powering this conversation is Bruno Van Waltohem, who is the acting director of the National Ignition Facility at Lawrence Livermore National Labs. And Bruno, so before we get on to just what lasers are and how they work and why, uh, just remind me, how what, what particles are you putting together in what sequence before you declare that you have completed your fusion path? So the fusion reaction that we are pursuing is uh, deuterium and tritium being fused together to form a helium atom and a neutron. So the neutron runs away with uh, a good fraction of the energy of the fusion reaction, uh, while the helium is a massive particle that is actually used to heat up the remaining fusion fuel. Uh, and in the process of fusion, we convert mass into energy. And based upon Einstein's equation, E equals mc squared, c squared being a gigantic number, a little bit of mass is actually converted into a lot of energy. And you create a more, I mean, stable, a little bit less mass and a lot of energy. And that is what we're trying to harvest in this process. It's unbelievable. Wait, wait. So how about the runaway neutron? Where, did, where does that go? Into witness protection. W witness protection. <laughs> it just goes and scatters around in concrete until it basically finally stops. But it can be harvested uh, using the correct or the appropriate technology and uh, turned into useful energy or turned into electricity or something that, uh, that we like. That's what I was wondering because... You can't electrically trap it because it's neutral. Right. So it actually, so all of its energy has to just sort of slam into something, and then and that energy then becomes heat. I guess. Yes. Correct. So you, you there, there, there's a collector. I, what, what would it be? I'm so fascinated by this right now. I don't know what to do. My head is swimming. So you know the byproduct, <laughs> the neutron. So here it is scattering. Are you saying that you could use some sort of collector, and what, and you would be able to gather that? Yes, something like a molten salt mantle around the target chamber that can basically absorb the neutrons and get heated up and carry the energy away. And it would heat up. Jesus Christ, you could yeah. heat that could heat up, and that could be used to actually do the, the the traditional way we make energy right now, which is heat water, turn it into steam, and turn a turbine. Except that you're not yes. burning anything to 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 create that steam. That is. 
Do you know that the oil companies are going to kill you, man? <laughs> no, what are you doing? <laughs> you shouldn't be in like public. <laughs> you should not be in public. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. Sorry. All right. All right. We'll, we'll embargo this, this board game. Wait. So, but let me get back to this. Uh, I know that you can find deuterium in just regular water supply. It was one out of whatever. A yes. thousand mm -hmm. water molecules mm -hmm. has, has a, whatever the number, maybe one out of a hundred, I think, has of the hydrogen in the H2O is actually deuterium. Where are you getting your hydrogen that has two neutrons, which is the tritium? Where did, okay. where did you come up with that? Wait, sorry, sorry. I'm sorry. You're two physicists talking to each other. Regular person here. Okay. Let's, you, let's get back, rewind just a right, bit. So I got this. I got this. I got it. Okay. So hydrogen, mining its own business, is one proton. Yes. That's normal hydrogen. Right. You can give it a neutron. It's still hydrogen, except it's a little heavier. We call it heavy hydrogen. And it's called okay. deuterium, so that's two. Okay? Okay. You can get a second neutron, cram it in there. Now it has three nuclear particles, and that's tritium. But it's still okay. hydrogen. Okay, it's so still that, that's what's going on here. Okay. That's what's going on. So now, the other thing is... One in every what molecules now? Uh, tell me, Bruno, is it one in a hundred or one in a thousand? Somewhere uh, around there? One in 5,000 uh, atoms in uh, normal, like, uh, or seawater is actually a uh, heavy hydrogen or a deuterium atom. So it can be extracted, I mean, through chemical techniques, through distillation. Gotcha. And plus it's combining, it's making the same molecule as a regular H2O because it's, the chemistry is the same. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's just a heavier hydrogen, right? Yeah. Wow. Man, I'm what? telling you right now, if I had just known all this crap when I was in school, I <laughs> might not be a comedian right now. <laughs> you might have been something else. It <laughs> is so amazing. Fun. It's fun stuff. Right. So, it is so cool. Bruno, where are you getting the tritium? Uh, the tritium is a much more complicated story because it doesn't occur in a natural uh, process, except that at extremely low abundances like 10 minus 18, which is basically non-existent. So our current supply of, of tritium release generated as a byproduct in traditional nuclear reactors. Uh, for example, one way that it's generated is by you take a, a deuterium atom and you bombard it with neutrons like what happens in a nuclear reactor, if it, heavy water is used to cool, then it creates once in a while a, a tritium atom, and you can extract that and uh, make it available uh, for use. Okay, but technically then it takes energy to make the, the tritium mm -hmm. that's in your reaction. Yeah. Is, so, is that part of your energy budget? So that's uh, the current process. Uh, the process that we would like to pursue for inertial fusion energy is to use a much Use the neutrons that are generated in the fusion process to create your own tritium. And you can do that, for example, Very by oh. bombarding lithium or molten lithium or lithium salt with neutrons. And that creates tritium that can then be extracted from the process. So you, once you have enough fuel to start, you can start creating, I mean, your own fuel. Wow. Right. So once again, self-perpetual. You're eat, you're eating the whole carcass. There's yeah, you're, you're, yeah. Okay. <laughs> nothing left over. We're using yes. it all. That's great. We're using it all. Oh yeah, wait, wait. So okay, so now you get to your, so you do that. They come together in your high temperature. Now you have helium three, right? So now we have two protons, which is helium, and normally it wants two neutrons, but now it only has one neutron. So that's helium-3, and you're still not done, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, I guess what I'm asking is, I happen to know, you surely know also, that uh, the solar wind is very rich in helium-3, and helium-3 is heavily embedded in the surface of the moon. Mm. And there's been talk of mining, surface mining the helium-3 from the moon, and then injecting that directly into your nuclear fusion so you don't have to go through the the the... the deuterium tritium process before you land on helium yeah. four, the full up red blooded helium. So what any thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, there is an alternative fusion reaction. The D plus helium three can basically also form helium four. Uh, and but it's 
threshold of the temperature that is needed in order to start the reaction is, is, is higher, almost twice as high as the deuterium and tritium and not as effective. So uh, we still have a more efficient process with uh, DT than the D-helium-3. Did not know that. Mm. Okay. Yeah, so the, right. the deuterium-tritium, I mean, fusion reaction is really the most effective uh, way of achieving, I mean, ignition and uh, operating the system, although many others are pursued. I mean, they are much less efficient and much harder to achieve. Now, let me pivot now to lasers, because all this is in enabled, empowered by lasers, and this is your bailiwick here. So, so let's let's get on the same page here. What's the difference between my PowerPoint laser <laughs> mm -hmm. and the 192 lasers you blasted your target with? I think it's uh, you need billions of those pointing lasers. The uh, amount of power generated by a typical uh, pointing source is about a few milliwatts. Uh, the NIF can generate 500 trillion watts on a target mm -hmm. and with an energy of 2 megajoules. 2 million joules, yeah, okay. Which is, I mean, mm -hmm. billions and billions times more than uh, what's typically obtained from a small laser. So it is the world's largest, highest energy and highest powered laser. It uh, contains 192 individual laser beams each by itself, I mean, the world's largest laser. And so it is a, oh, wow. a tremendous wow. uh, departure from the, the typical and the previously used uh, lasers in uh, fusion ignition. It's almost a factor of 60 larger than the, wow. the Nova laser. And so it is one of the first lasers that is really engineered instead of being a tabletop large scientific laser. It's a laser that is really designed to be compact, cost-effective, I mean, high energy, high power, and it is really set up, I mean, to meet ignition. And we have worked uh, almost 20 years to bring that laser from initial design in the early 90s to starting the building at the end of the 90s, starting the laser begin, beginning of the 2000s. And completing the laser in uh, 2009, where we started to do actual experiments. So it took us 20 years, I mean, to build and put these lasers together. And it, uh, it worked incredible. I mean, it's, it's a laser that was just engineered so well that when we brought it up, it all worked and it all met. It actually, its uh, design requirements, and very quickly it exceeded its design requirements in the way that we currently operate and in the way that we achieved the uh, ignition experiment uh, last December. But just to be clear, did I hear you say that each of the 192 lasers is itself the most powerful laser in the world? Yes. Did, mm -hmm. did you say that? Wow. Yes. So th this is the laser that cats actually hate. Yeah. <laughs> the cats, yeah. Their cats have no... Well, yeah, they don't... They're just like, look at that. We lost another cat, guys. Lost another yep. cat. <laughs> yep. <laughs> they have no... Yeah, they have no recourse against these lasers. That's it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> the cat terminator. Oh, so, so, but just to be clear, my low-power presentation laser, which you dissed, um, I presume makes a laser beam in in the same using the same physics as your yes. lasers isn't yes. that correct that's correct yeah. so could tell us what that physics is so the, the physics is based upon light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation so yeah what that you sounds like it spells something <laughs> yeah you think yeah. That is exactly oh, no. what the, the actual name that was uh, put forward i mean to describe i mean the process by which you can actually store energy in molecules and use radiation to actually stimulate or trigger the emission of photons so that when you do that in a coherent way, in a way with a beam of photons that goes in the same direction with the same wavelength, creates more photons or more copies of itself and creates a brighter and brighter beam that goes one direction, that has one color, and that is the difference, I mean, between a normal, ordinary incandescent bulb 
where you have light that goes all directions yeah. over a wide spectrum of wavelengths. The laser beams are now is a way or means of extracting energy from a medium that you have uh, excited using another energy source. And that could be another laser, that could be a flash lamp uh, to provide that medium that then can undergo light amplification by the stimulated emission of radiation. And that's uh, the mechanism that is being used to generate the laser beams. So, so, you're, so as you said, and the design of any given laser only can generate one uh, wavelength of light that comes out. So there's no you can't tune a laser, I guess. It's only good for that one kind of light that comes out. Is that correct? That's correct. Though some laser, some gain media or atoms, I mean, allow some, a little bit of tunability around uh, uh, a certain wavelength. But uh, the laser itself is always, I mean, is, is uh, basically characterized by its coherence. And that basically means a narrow spectrum and a narrow spatial distribution of the energies. Wow. All right, so, so the lasers we're all familiar with use visible light, the red lasers and green lasers. Now we have some blue lasers, but I heard you refer to ultraviolet. Uh, so yes. are these UV lasers instead? Uh, the laser itself, the solid state lasers that are used to create the beams and amplify the beams uh, largely use uh, neodymium in a glass media because we need to be able to handle very high energies uh, and be very efficient at the same time. And they tend to operate in the infrared. So basically, it's a wavelength just above the visible region. Now, the targets don't like the infrared light because they basically create a plasma and send the laser beam right back towards the laser, which is uh, not a good thing to happen. And so we learned in our previous laser systems that you need to have a shorter wavelength and we first started to double the frequency of the laser, so we turned the infrared to green. And uh, finally, we found that actually converting the lasers, the infrared, to ultraviolet was even much more efficient because the ultraviolet light can penetrate deeper into the plasma that you're forming. And so it's much better, uh, much more of the energy is absorbed and used for uh, uh, heating the plasma that then can start your fusion reactions. Wow. So again, you just, you guys are being very efficient about everything. Just move, you know, and, and I'm just trying to add up all the smarts that that takes. And I'm just very impressed just listening to you talk about this and your, in, in your, in your laserdom that you have there. <laughs> laserdom. <laughs> laserdom. Laserdom. I like uh, it. We, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to our special guest, this, acting director of the National Ignition Facility of the Lawrence Livermore National Labs. We're going to ask him about the future of lasers and what's next in line. And, and when are we going to have Mr. Home Fusion to power our cars, like in the movie Back to the Future? <laughs> We're going to learn all of that when we return on Star Talk. We're back. Star Talk. We're talking about lasers and fusion with the acting director of the National Ignitions Facility at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, Bruno van Wonterhem. I think I nailed that one that time. Yes. Okay. I get. You get it. So, Bruno, I've heard people joke <laughs> about Lawrence Livermore Labs that those three L's really stand for lasers, lasers, and lasers. Is that... Is that lasers, a lasers, nothing but lasers. Yeah. <laughs> and from our point of view, that is true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I remember, lasers are us. You know, looking yes. at the Guinness Book of World Records, tracking who had the most powerful laser in the world, and it always landed at Livermore. So what? Why? Yes, you, you did something great with these most powerful lasers, but over time, why the why the the 
is it just bragging rights that you have the most powerful laser? Or is there some real scientific objective for it? It was a scientific technology bootstrapping process where every time we come up with the design for an igniting target or an igniting experiment, we build the lasers, we try to target, and we figured out, well, there was something missing in our understanding. We needed more laser energy and power. Uh, there were more energy losses in the process. There were different conditions. And so it took us five, six of those cycles since the 70s to figure out a design like the National Ignition Facility where with high confidence we said we now have the right recipe, the right number of lasers, the right symmetry, the right precision in the laser to uh, achieve all the conditions that are required uh, to make ignition happen. And it's not all about the size of the lasers too. Equally important is just the quality, the accuracy and the precision of where you point the beams, where you time the beams, how the power is distributed. Because uh, you take a capsule and you compress it 30-fold. So you take a, a basketball and you turn it into a pea. And if you don't have, I mean, exquisite symmetry, I mean, you don't get a pea. You get some something that just, I mean, comes out through your hands. And so... So you need extremely, I mean, high energy, high power, but also extremely precise, uh, extremely stable, extremely well-controlled lasers. You're creating a perfect implosion from um, from all directions out of this sphere. Now, Now, plasma, of course, the only value of your lasers is to get the right temperature plasma when you're done. We've also heard of uh, magnetically contained Fusion. I guess the tokamak is a whole other possible approach to fusion. How do they get their plasma? Because their plasma is also millions of degrees, right? Yeah, but their plasma are lower temperature and densities, and they are held together using magnet magnets in a large vacuum chamber. So it's a very large plasma that is uh, contained and heated up using. Uh, an induction process, so it's uh, quite different, so it's uh, much slower and steady. And uh, lasers are only used for diagnostic, uh, but not uh, to drive the process. And, and forgive me for some of our, our, our viewers and, and listeners, could you just tell us what a plasma is? Because I think we were just using it like it's, of course, we know what a plasma is. Typically, most people's understanding of the word comes from blood plasma. After you remove the, I guess it's the platelets or whatever, and what's left is plasma. So there's medical plasma. So what is physical plasma? Astrophysical plasma. So f- physical plasma is a collection of medium of atoms that has been energized to such a level that it starts to lose its electrons, and so the electrons and the nuclei start to form a continuum and start to uh, uh, float around each other, and so that's what is called a plasma. That means it could respond to magnetic fields, whereas a normal gas resp- would not have the reason to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and uh, okay. why, why did they think this was a good idea for television? Plasma television? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <It's> a- <laughs> wait, wait. Isn't, isn't the gas inside of neon tubes a plasma? And in fluorescent tubes? Isn't that yes, all because it's very easily ionized, and so it's, it easily forms a plasma. Without having to go to very high temperatures, it's just... Right. And, and, that, and that little, you don't see it anymore, but that, that glow ball... Yeah, that you put your hands you on. You put your mm-hmm. hand on, and you see it's just like glowing gas. Yes. Bruno, have you seen these? I don't yes. know how, if they let you out, you nope. know. <laughs> no, we have seen those, we use those. <laughs> Did they let you out of the facility? You can see them in malls, you know, no. and... Mm-hmm. and in gift shops, yeah. Yeah, but there are applications of it, but uh, the, the plasma also allows to, uh, to be heated further and further, and so you can create, I mean, interesting conditions, and you can start to experiment and have, uh, have atoms, I mean, do interesting physics for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and most of the universe is plasma. I mean, all stars are yes. plasma, mm-hmm. and, and so we're, we're, we're kind of, we live with it when we yes. study mm-hmm. that. I just wanted to ask, because, you know, as you were talking about the refinement of these lasers over a period of time, but it's always been in service to finding a better way to achieve fusion. 
in that process, has there been advancements in lasers that we benefit? Like maybe you guys didn't benefit, but we did. You mean spinoffs en route? Spinoffs, yeah. yeah. Uh, we have had a number of uh, spin-offs that are not directly, I mean, coming to your home, although, I mean, there was uh, a technique that is being used, for example, to harden turbine blades for jet engines using lasers. Oh, that that's is now, important. That has been commercialized and is used on a relatively wide scale. Well, I just wonder, now that the turbine blades are harder, maybe they'll just slice up those ducks. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then we can collect them on the back end and make lunch. <laughs> so, so now when a plane flies oh. into flocks of geese or whatever, like uh, Sully did and landed yeah. in the right. Hudson River, uh, uh, I don't know. It helps. it helps for that, but yeah. it also makes you feel better when you're flying that you know the engine is going to survive the flight and not mm -hmm. uh, basically start to disassemble somewhere en route. So I hate it when that happens. I, think I hate it. it. <laughs> Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is your captain. Uh, as you can see, we just threw, uh, flew through a uh, flock of geese and I uh, want to let you know that our in-flight meal today will be duck a la We have to be fast for it. <laughs> so, Bruno, tell me again, do you think what you have achieved here is scalable, whatever that word means as I'm using it, I don't know, but scalable so that it can be ported to power stations, or maybe I can have one of these in my garage, or or yeah. Like, who, where where do, so, where does this go after what you've done? Yeah. So this concept can lead to the design of uh, inertial fusion energy-based power plants. Those are fairly large plants because the laser system we're needing is is it's not a a small laser system. It is a large facility. I mean, we're talking stadium-sized lasers. We have to do a significant amount of engineering development because we need to run them at 10 times per second instead of one time a day. Uh, we need to have targets that can be, I mean, produced, I mean, at the rate of 10 times per second. Uh, we need to develop a system to capture the energy uh, produced the tritium fuel that is needed uh, to run it, and then uh, convert the energy to electricity. But it's just it, that's just engineering at this point. That's not. There's physics. a lot of engineering. There is no. You got the physics different down. Physics. We got right. the physics down. I mean, we still want more, higher gain than what we achieved on the December experiment. But we have ways to, uh, to do that. We understand how we can achieve that. Mm -hmm. And so, wow. yes, we believe that. I mean, within a few, a decade, two decades, uh, we may have, I mean, a, a working model of an inertial fusion energy plant. And so how about one for my car where I have a, a Mr. Fusion home device? You just put stuff in the top and then close it down and then I run, that's my day's fuel. Is it, That would be like a portable version of it, right? So that is a little bit far-fetched from this because, I mean, right now the scale of the lasers or the scale of the, that is required, I mean, doesn't lend itself easily, I mean, to a very a, a compact system. So, but it doesn't mean that we'll, or there may be ideas uh, to do this. Yeah, and Bruno, you know, computers used to be the size of entire rooms, factories, just to do simple calculations. And now, you know, we carry it around on our hip. So... You think lasers might not be shrinkable in that way? There are definitely materials that can be made more efficient, that can be drivers that are more efficient. So yes, they will scale. I'm not sure, though, that they will scale large enough to be a tabletop type of device. But then, again, I never, I don't want to say no, because, I mean, like in the development of a, the cell phone, I mean, that was inconceivable 50 years ago. Mm, uh, there's right. something in your pocket that tells you where to walk and how to drive. Right, right. I remember I, I, my, my first GPS device was this large, it was handheld, yeah. but it was huge. Yeah. And its yeah. only job was to give me my coordinates as I walked. It was a fun sort of novelty item. And it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> and now it's some chip inside of something that's one-tenth the size of what the whole thing did, and it does a hundred other things including make a phone call. Wow. So, so what's in the future at, at, your, at your facility? When can we have guns that go pew? 
You want laser? You want you want laser guns? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's actually a significant effort on uh, laser-based. I mean, or or directed uh, energy weapons. I mean, besides, I mean, fusion applications. But the in terms of the fusion applications and work that will be done in the National Ignition Facility, you want to achieve, I mean, significantly higher gains. This time we obtain 3 megajoule. We would like to obtain 10 megajoule, 50 megajoule, 100 megajoule, and basically improve the process, improve the physics, improve the quality of the targets, and investigate what needs to be done, and make it then the... Uh, Fusion yield useful for our stockpile stewardship goals. So, uh, in the mission statement of Lawrence Livermore Lab, if I remember it correctly, it's you are the nation's repository and intellectual center for everything nuke, right? Nuclear energy is you, right? So, uh, if you, once you're done doing the fusion thing, and then it gets mass-produced or whatever. Is there a next project that's still within that mission statement that you'll continue to do? Well, the next challenge that we're looking at is even higher yields or uh, yields around 500 uh, megajoule or even gigajoule, uh, which would have uh, significant uh, implications and significant uh, benefits in our goal of achieving the uh, safety and reliability of the stockpile. So that would be, I mean, our... Uh, Next step in the laboratory, well, of course, I mean, we will be participating and helping out and working together with private industry, developing inertial fusion energy. Okay, yeah. so Chuck, just so you're on the same page as what he just said, okay, mm-hmm. did you hear him say gigajoules? Did you hear that? Okay. Yes, I did. So a joule is a unit of energy, and right. one joule per second is by definition a watt. So right. if he gets to 1.22 Gigawatts. <laughs> Gigawatts. <laughs> then you can travel through time. And that's, that's it. This is we're good to go. That is the secret <laughs> energy level in Back to the Future. Yeah. No, this yeah. has been a delightful conversation, Bruno. And uh, unbelievable. We have not met before. Thank you for uh, taking our call. And if we can put you on speed dial, if you have any new new developments, we'll put you back okay. on and we'll see uh, what else. Because our we have a very eager curious and interested following yes and uh, gonna, our listeners are smart <laughs> <laughs> gonna, that was a great meeting i mean i really appreciated the conversation definitely uh, again great to have you uh th- we our guest has been bruno van wonderham wonderham yes uh, the national ignition facility the lawrence livermore national labs in near livermore california and uh, he's in charge there. Would you call him, Chuck? Boss man. Boss man. Boss man. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay, I get that. Mm-hmm. All right. I get well, that. Put that on your, on your business card, and then yeah. people will treat you a whole other way when you do that. <laughs> uh, Chuck, always good to have you, man. Always a pleasure. Neil deGrasse Tyson here. This has been Star Talk. As always, I bid you to keep looking up. 